Hello, and welcome once again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today our episode is all about one of the most controversial topics in music publishing history, the parental advisory label. Just a heads up, there is some explicit language in this episode. Before we get too far in, if you follow over at Radio Gaga Podcast on Instagram, you know I went to see Casey Musgraves in Atlanta this past weekend. The concert was so much fun. It was at the Tabernacle in Atlanta, which is a fantastic old venue with a lot of history. And as my friend and fellow concert goer Kelly pointed out, everyone at the Tabernacle was really nice. From standing in line outside to getting drinks at the bars inside, everyone working there seemed to be going out of their way to be genuinely kind. I don't feel this vibe a lot at concerts. Maybe they were all just psyched they were getting to see Casey Musgraves. I don't know. But anyway, Casey sounded amazing. Her voice was as perfect as it is on her records, and I have no idea how she does that. But she played every song off of Golden Hour, plus some oldies like Merry Go Round and Follow Your Arrow. And she started singing a cover of Gnarls Barkley's Crazy, then freaking CeeLo Green shows up on stage, and everyone in the crowd lost it. It was a super unexpected but great cameo. Casey's stage also looked really great. Her band sounded amazing. She was super relaxed and fun and the entire crowd sang along to every single song. I usually don't sing along too much at concerts because I didn't buy a ticket to hear my own voice, but this was a special exception. We sang so hard to every single song that Kelly and I both woke up in the morning with sore throats. It was a blast. All right, let's get into the parental advisory label and my main sources for this episode. I referenced this book before in the backmasking episode, but Taboo Tunes by Peter Blecka is a great read for anyone wanting more insight into music censorship. I also got some help from NPR, Rolling Stone, the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA, who you'll hear me mention a little bit in this episode, and other publications that I'll cite throughout. Let's start this episode out with a question. What was the first album you owned, either bought or had burned for you or otherwise, that had the parental advisory sticker on the front? Mine was Blink-182's Take Off Your Pants and Jacket from 2001. As you can probably guess, I had to hide this one from my parents for a little while, at least until I had a car. Although by the time I had a car, I also had saved enough for an iPod shuffle, so I was able to fly a little more under the radar with my explicit music rather than stack it all in a pile in my room for all to see. I asked you guys this same question over on Instagram stories last week, and I'm loving all the responses I've been getting. A lot of these feel pretty familiar. SwirlVO on Instagram said his first parental advisory album was Jay-Z's Hard Knock Life Volume 2. He asked for it for Christmas when he was 12, and his parents had no idea what they were giving him. Upon hearing him play it, they took it away. Big Dog 145 on Instagram said his first was Sublime, which he got by looking through all the CDs at Best Buy to find one that had a sticker that covered up the parental advisory label so his parents wouldn't notice. 
Lo M. Cochran on Instagram said her first parental advisory album was Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette, followed by Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. But she says her parents didn't put a lot of thought into the parental advisory label until she wanted to buy an Eminem album, given the context of the cursing. I also found this funny. Wilco frontman Jeff Twee writes in his memoir that as a kid, he had found a copy of London Calling at Target on a shopping trip with his mom, but it had a parental warning sticker on the front. So every time they'd go back to Target, he'd try to scratch away a little bit of the sticker and hide it in another bin for next time. Eventually, the entire sticker was gone, and he asked his mom if he could buy it. I like this story because he says he still has this record and can still see the indentations he made trying to scratch the sticker off. So a lot of us have these stories and maybe still have this tiny twinge of guilt in our stomachs every time we see this label. But ever since the parental advisory label was implemented decades ago, the music landscape has completely changed. The label was first introduced in the 80s to notify parents of music that may be unsuitable for children with regard to inappropriate language or content. But now, it's so much easier than it used to be for young children to listen to explicit music. So in addition to understanding the history and the initial goals of the parental advisory label, the question I want to answer in today's episode is, is this label even relevant anymore? In this episode, we'll get into the history of the label, why it was introduced, and the major backlash it received. And we'll talk a little bit about what power the label has anymore, if any, based on how much the music industry and the devices we use to listen to music have changed since 1985. Let's start with a quick refresher on censorship. Censorship is the act of suppressing or prohibiting behavior, artistic ideas, or political expressions in an effort to supervise and control the morality of others. This isn't just with music. This applies to any art form like books or paintings, as well as reporting the news. Especially in the United States where we have the right to free speech, musicians have fought the good fight against censorship for decades. And we are lucky to live in a country where that's possible. I will do an entire episode, or honestly, it might have to be a series of episodes, about the danger of censorship in music and the horrific ways that governing bodies implement it to stifle their citizens around the world. There are countries where recording artists aren't allowed to sing about personal feelings or romantic love, and countries where specific instruments are banned. There are places in this world where a woman singing or even humming to herself in public can result in arrest or worse. And in some countries, fans of music, not even the musicians themselves, are punished as the government may freely invade their homes day or night to seize outlawed materials. And censorship happens because music is extremely powerful. It fosters free thinking and has the ability to advocate new ideas to its listener. On a large scale, this scares governments. And on a family level, this scares parents. And that's why the Parents Music Resource Center, a government-adjacent nonprofit group, was able to create such an uproar. Personally, there are plenty of artists I don't agree with and explicit music I can't stand to listen to, and some of it I definitely wouldn't want children to hear. But I'll defend to the death a musician's right to make it. I really feel passionate about combating censorship and understanding and invoking our right to free speech, so I'll be putting some more thorough research into that for a later episode. For now, 
Let's talk about one historical facet of music censorship in the United States, the parental advisory label. The Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, is the group that introduced the parental advisory label. The PMRC was founded in 1985 by Tipper Gore, the wife of then-senator and future VP Al Gore. This whole thing started when Tipper bought a copy of Prince's groundbreaking album Purple Rain for her 11-year-old daughter. As she describes in her book, Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated Society, Gore and her daughter were both appalled by the vulgar lyrics, specifically in the song, Darling Nikki. I knew a girl named Nikki, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. How'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind. So in 1985, Gore gathered up some of her conservative housewife friends, later known as the Washington Wives, and formed the Parents Music Resource Center. This group, which also included Susan Baker, wife of former Secretary of State James Baker, and Pam Hauer, the wife of Raymond Hauer, a real estate developer active in the Republican Party, would use their political connections to fight the music industry and specific musicians who they felt were creating music unsuitable for children. The PMRC made it clear that they were prepared to go after any modern music advocating sex, drug use, violence, or the occult. The group's first project was the infamous list titled The Filthy Fifteen. These were 15 specific songs that the PMRC called out specifically and deemed objectionable based on the lyrical content being too violent or sexual. Can we stop for a moment and just imagine all these ladies sitting around listening to Prince and Twisted Sister and clutching their pearls? What a party. Let's go through the filthy 15 now and why each song was selected. Unsurprisingly, Darling Nikki topped the list. That one and Cindy Lauper's Shebop were both included because they referenced masturbation. Easton's Sugar Walls, Judas Priest's Eat Me Alive, Vanity's Strap On Robbie Baby, ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You, Madonna's Dress You Up, and Mary Jane Girl's In My House were included on the list for containing sexual references. Motley Crue's Bastard, Twisted Sisters' We're Not Gonna Take It, and Wasps' Animal for violent references. Oh, no 
There's also Def Leppard's High and Dry and Black Sabbath's Trashed for references to drug and alcohol use. And lastly, Merciful Fates, Into the Coven, and Venom's Possessed were on the list for references to the occult. list in hand and funding and support to back them up, the PMRC lobbied and rallied support among school PTAs. There were plenty of other conservative groups who had their backs as well, including the Moral Majority, led by Reverend Jerry Falwell, the Christian Coalition, led by Reverend Pat Robertson, and the National Federation for Decency. They were anti-rock, against the free speech of musicians, and called artists criminals for writing and performing their songs. But there was a ton of support for this movement. President Reagan had also just been reelected, which pumped new energy into supporters of conservatizing our country's pop culture in the 80s. And just so they all had their stories straight and one tidy narrative to get the public involved, they went after rock and roll. And the PMRC, whose political connections meant they were the closest to Washington, became the leaders of the movement against music. The women of the PMRC were so quietly powerful because they presented an image of themselves not as censors, but just simply concerned parents who wanted a review of dirty lyrics and cover artwork. But make no mistake, the end goal was to suppress and in some cases prohibit these musicians and their art in an attempt to control the morality of others. That, as we defined earlier, is censorship. And it became a scary time for record companies and even the musicians themselves. So let's get into the next step, the PMRC's conversation with the Recording Industry Association of America. After the Filthy 15 was released and the PMRC had a large level of support behind them, the Recording Industry Association of America agreed to meet with the group to discuss their most concerning issues. One of the ideas that the PMRC wanted to implement was a tiered rating system for music, not unlike the one currently in place in the film industry. The RIAA agreed, and kind of suspiciously quickly at that. As vocal dissenter and musician Frank Zappa pointed out, the RIAA had another proposal awaiting a congressional vote concerning government protection against record piracy, copyright violations, and allowing record companies to earn royalties from the sale of blank tapes. In other words, it looked as though the RIAA was willing to play ball if it meant their own proposal was passed. The political power of the PMRC was beginning to buck its head. So by August of 1985, 19 record companies had agreed that, upon a Senate ruling, they would put labels on certain albums based on the PMRC's, quote, porn rock rating system. 
with an X for profane or sexually explicit lyrics, O for occult references, DA for references to drugs and alcohol, and V for violent lyrics. Before these labels were officially put into place, the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation held a hearing to review the need for warning labels on albums. It had become a pretty high-profile case at this point, garnering a circus of TV coverage and public attention. It was the PMRC versus musicians, so-called good versus so-called evil. First up at the hearing was Senator Paula Hawkins, who used the visuals of the Hot for Teacher music video by Van Halen and covers of albums including Def Leppard's Pyromania and Wasp's Self-Titled to illustrate her point that subtleties and innuendo had now given way to overt descriptions of sex, violence, drugs, and the occult. Yes, the entire Senate watched the Hot for Teacher music video in its entirety. Next up were Susan Baker and Tipper Gore from the PMRC who outright blamed explicit music for society's problems and made the official ask to have record companies label their music as inappropriate for younger children. To piggyback on that, the vice president of the national PTA, Millie Waterman, suggested printing the symbol R on the cover of recordings containing explicit content. They also had a music professor speak regarding the influence of music on behavior, as well as a child and adolescent psychiatrist to speak on the deification of famous musicians. But in possibly the most TV-worthy moment of the hearing, the PMRC surprised with an expert consultant, a minister named Jeff Ling. If kids watching this hearing on TV didn't know bad lyrics before, they did after Ling's presentation. Ling told Vulture magazine in 2010 that he regrets that his contribution to the congressional record includes him quoting the extremely vile and not even that popular mentor song, Golden Showers. On Golden Showers, which says these words, Listen, you little slut, do as you are told. Come with daddy for me to pour the gold. Golden showers, all through my excrements you shall roam. Bend up and smell my anal vapor. Your face is my toilet paper. On your face I leave a shit tower. Golden showers. Mr. Chairman, right, that my remarks, and I thank you. I'm sorry, your time has expired. <laughs> the musicians also had their say at the hearing. Three opposing witnesses were present, Frank Zappa, Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, and John Denver. All three made articulate, impressive testimonies. Zappa asserted that, quote, the PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense, which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the interpretation and enforcement problems inherent in the proposal's design, end quote. Snyder, whose Twisted Sister song, We're Not Gonna Take It, had been named specifically on the Filthy 15, testified that in many cases, his music had been misinterpreted to fit the ideals of the PMRC. He gave the example of their song, Under the Blade, which had been interpreted by the Washington Wives as a song about sadomasochism and sexual violence. In reality, Snyder wrote that song about his bandmate, Eddie Ojeda, who needed surgery and had expressed his fear of going under the blade. Snyder goes on to say, quote, that the only sadomasochism, bondage, and rape in this song is in the mind of Miss Gore. She was looking for sadomasochism and bondage, and she found it. Someone looking for surgical references would have found it as well, end quote. Snyder concluded that, quote, the full responsibility for defending my children falls on the shoulders of my wife and I, because there is no one else capable of making these judgments for us, end quote. And when John Denver came up to give his testimony, 
The PMRC kind of thought they had this one in the bag, thinking Good Guy Denver would be offended by the lyrics as well and side with the censors. But instead, he threw them an incredibly cogent testimony, saying that in his experience, censors often misinterpret music. He stated his belief that censorship is counterproductive, saying, quote, that which is denied becomes that which is most desired, and that which is hidden becomes that which is most interesting. Consequently, a great deal of time and energy is spent trying to get at what is being kept from you, end quote. Ultimately, even before the hearings had ended, the RIAA agreed to put warning labels on selected releases at their own discretion. That's key. Still today, it's technically optional for record companies to include the parental advisory label on explicit music. But there wasn't any real design or order to this label at first, and it didn't include the rating system brought up in that first meeting. Record companies basically had to independently design and word their own warning labels until 1990, when the black and white parental advisory label we all know today was designed and permanently put into place. The PMRC had gotten its way. And what's even scarier is that the PMRC's hopes and dreams didn't stop at the parental advisory label. We would later learn that the group had hopes of establishing a citizen's media watch system that would monitor radio and TV, then organizing against those broadcasters who aired music the group disapproved of. There were even movements and laws designed and passed to punish the artists, record producers, and even the retailers who stocked and sold explicit albums. And this scared everyone. Major stores, including Walmart, went so far as to stop stocking albums with the parental advisory label on them altogether. Even still today, Walmart only sells edited versions. Radio stations started to self-censor, avoiding songs on the Filthy 15 and any others that might be deemed inappropriate. Record companies and producers and even some musicians were freaked out and felt limited in the ways they could express themselves, afraid a curse word might get them arrested. The parental advisory label was increasing the state of alarm across the music industry and ultimately challenging our free speech. It was a dark time in music history. But you know what happens when you tell kids they can't have something? They want it more. And that is exactly what happened. The label began having a reverse effect, a forbidden fruit that instead of preventing people from listening, actually drew more people in. Some record store owners even stacked their wares with the parental advisory label in the most prominent location in their own featured rack, essentially making it irresistible to kids. This is the point where more laws were enacted that prevented the sale of explicit albums to minors. But for the most part, the parental advisory label didn't affect album sales at all, and in some cases actually benefited artists by making them more popular. And for musicians, the fight continues on. Artists have been specifically criticizing the PMRC and Tipper Gore in their music and live performances ever since the mid-80s. One famous example is Rage Against the Machine's performance at Lollapalooza in 1993. The band stood naked on stage with duct tape covering their mouths and the letters PMRC written on their chests. They had 14 minutes to perform and spent the entire time standing there with just feedback coming from the speakers. 
Though most Rage fans agree with their stance, the ones who were at the show were pretty disappointed. So the band later played a free show for them to make up for it. Other artists throughout the past few decades have called out the PMRC and Tipper Gore in their music and song titles, including the NoFX EP titled The PMRC Can Suck On This, Ice-T's song Freedom of Speech, Ode to Tipper Gore from Warren's album Cherry Pie, plenty of feedback on the issue from Eminem, and so many more. Even still today, more than 30 years after the original ruling, you hear and see references against the PMRC everywhere as musicians fight the good fight against censorship. today's episode, let's try to answer our earlier question. Does the parental advisory label still matter today? In my eyes, no, definitely not. Record companies like Epitaph have stopped using it altogether, so for physical music like CDs and vinyl, this relic is very much on its way out. But on the digital side, even an E next to a song title in iTunes or the word explicit next to a song on Spotify These tactics hold none of their former power because the barrier to access no longer exists. I'll explain, starting with a debilitating fact I read the other day. A 2018 study by Childwise shows that 20% of children under the age of 6 owns a smartphone. This goes up to 41% by the time children are 7 to 8 and increases to 59% for 9 and 10-year-olds. And by age 11, 9 in 10 children have their own smartphone. And on average, kids are spending upwards of three hours or more every day just on their phones. Almost half of parents worry their child is addicted to their mobile device. And look, I grew up with MTV. I saw music videos at ages I should never have seen them, and obviously was obsessed with music as a kid, including music that contained questionable content. When I did come across graphic imagery or lyrics that made me blush, I remember being aware of how uncomfortable seeing and hearing these things made me feel. And while I probably never truly processed some of the content I was exposed to, in the long run, I think some of it actually opened my worldview in a productive way. But as a kid, there were also a lot of physical barriers between me and all this content. I had to buy every CD I owned with my own money, of which I had very little, and even still, getting carded at Best Buy when I tried to buy the parental advisory CDs proved pretty fruitless. I didn't have a TV in my room, I didn't own my own computer, didn't have a flip phone until I was old enough to drive, and bought my first internet-accessible phone well out of college. But these physical boundaries don't seem to exist anymore. Kids carry their TV, their computer, and their phone around with them at all times now. It's all right there in one single device at their disposal all day long. Any kid with a curious mind and two working thumbs can tell a website she is over the age of 18, or start a dummy Spotify account or just go to YouTube. Or if their phone doesn't have access to the internet, their friends definitely does. Kids are curious and they are resourceful, and they will continue to find their way to music they're not ready for, just as they always have. And organizations will continue to fight to take away rights from artists who create explicit music, just as they always have. But at its core, music is not to blame for society's problems. It's a reflection of them. 
And just as free speech protects an artist's right to make music freely, it also protects our right to listen to those artists as we choose. Advisories and labels and warnings can be slapped on wherever, but it doesn't magically make the bad stuff go away. It's ultimately up to us to decide what we want to let in. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am very excited for next week's episode, Abba Gold. If you change your mind, take a chance on the first in line. On the take a chance on me. If you need me, let me know. Gonna be around. If you got no place to go, when you feel down. If you're all alone. This is technically ABBA's Greatest Hits album, and it will probably be the only time I'll do a Greatest Hits on this podcast. But somehow, ABBA feels like a special exception. I'll explain more in the episode, but it will basically be a history of the band, including the songs from Gold, to illustrate all the phases of their career. They have a super interesting backstory. I can't wait to share this one with you. So give ABBA a listen this week, and I'll see you back here next Tuesday. <laughs>